Welcome back to the Joshua Shaw audio experience. Firstly, thank you for giving me a bit of your attention. I'm honored you trusted me with it, and I promise to return the favor by giving you a ton of edutainment value back. I want to welcome you back to another episode of what I've branded Pivotal since these interview style segments tackle impactful CPG industry topics and lessons from the business leaders that live it every day. In this episode, I talk with a fellow Ohio native, CPGer, Matt Mullinex, who is the co-founder and CEO of the high-performance men's personal care brand, Huron. Matt also shares how his experience throughout his years with the personal care and men's grooming CPG categories impacted and formed the inspiration to start Huron. We also discuss the shifting relationship between men and the personal care category. Start to finish, this was one of the most insightful and fascinating conversations that I've ever been a part of on camera. One that literally spanned almost every intersection of the strategic roadmap that will give you a sense of how an emerging CPG brand is attacking today's complex marketplace. So without further delay, here is my recent conversation with Matt Mullinex. Welcome, Matt. I appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time, giving my community some of your time so we can kind of bless them with a ton of valuable insights. And I know I mentioned this to you when we first initially started uh, chatting, but like I was introduced to your brand at this point, I think about a year ago when somebody that I follow on Twitter shared a photo of like what they were using for like personal care products and they, you know, shared Huron. And I was like, damn, that is like some sexy looking <laughs> personal care products. And like, I'm trying to think of like, that hasn't happened to me very often, like in that category, especially on the men's side. And, and I look at a ton of packaging or whatever, but there hasn't been ones that like has really made me sit down like go, Oh, okay. That's a little bit different. Okay. <laughs> that's interesting. So wanted to kind of start off by, uh, you know, mentioning that, but, um, the more that I dug into your background, I started to realize that there was some similarities um, between us, both like personally and professionally. So I guess first off, I'm going to say OH. IO, that's right. <laughs> a great way to start. Yeah, both, both Ohio guys. Um, I grew up Northeast Ohio in Youngstown. You were down in, in Cincinnati. So we're, we're obviously yep. the polar opposites in terms of the state, but uh, you know, always the camaraderie that comes with uh, being an Ohio person. You got to show that off a little bit. Uh, right. Secondly, we both kind of started at least educationally and, and, and professionally towards, you know, accounting, finance, econ type side before we took a shift over to CPG. So I always think that's another like kind of camaraderie thing because like coming from that over, it's always interesting because people are like, how did you get into, yeah. you, know, you know, CPG? And then the last part, I, I think there's this aspect of maybe like hindsight, like environment, um, serendipity type thing that happens where, you know, being from Cincinnati and being in like the backyard of uh, Procter and Gamble, now you're in personal care, which I think is, is kind of interesting. And then like my dad was, he owned a convenience store. Um, so growing up, that was my first job. So I was like now doing food, beverage, all that kind of stuff. Like it all kind of makes sense, like if you put it <laughs> reverse, but like when you're doing it, like, you know, you're looking at it just from that, you're like, how did I get to where I got? But yeah, um, comes full circle. Yeah, but but welcome with that with that introduction. Yeah, yeah thanks, Josh, for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm super pumped to chat today and obviously a bunch of similarities. Uh, 
I like to say Ohioans have an irrational passion for Ohio. Uh, I think that's even more prominent outside of Ohio. Uh, I mean, I probably scream OH three times a week on the New York sidewalks uh, and usually get a fiery response back. So uh, yeah, always a pleasure to chat with a, with a fellow Buckeye. Yeah, and I, and I don't know if you, you know, you get this is like ever since I moved away from Ohio, maybe this is the only thing people know about Ohio is that they always ask you about uh, if you're a fan of the Buckeyes and if you went to college at Ohio State, which neither of us went to Ohio State. But uh, it's always when you live anywhere else, that's the first question it seems like anybody ever asks. Yeah. And being from Cincinnati, I get, oh, do you like Skyline Chili? And I'm like, I actually yes. hate it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, those are like the two the two default questions for sure. That's such a love or hate food. You know what I mean? I was like, I, I grew up a few times eating it. And I was thinking this is not good, uh, but no, it's not. For, for whatever reason, that's one of our claim uh, to fame, I guess, in terms of food. But I wanted to kind of shift into talking about, you know, some of the relationship that's going on right now with like maybe men in the personal care category, maybe even like you could broaden it out and include beauty as well. But, you know, growing, I guess, the appearance side of like the wellness <laughs> dimensions, like and how, I guess, consumers are looking at wellness maybe holistically and, you know, they're including that. And, and you guys are positioned as at least on your, you know, Instagram, you say like high performance men's grooming products, which I think, you know, aligns you perfectly within that section. But I think we think about maybe what's happening in terms of like the evolution. It's kind of interesting to think like, why shouldn't a man want to look better? Why, you know, shouldn't he be uh, interested in his appearance or what he looks like um, to other people. And, you know, there's there's longstanding, I guess, like conditions and things that have happened in terms of the environment that maybe is bringing us to that point. But, you know, mm -hmm. now that you've been in the category for a few years now and you've kind of been maybe battling through some of that using storytelling or whatever, I'm kind of interested to see, like, from your viewpoint, maybe where you see the evolution of, like, men in the category. Yeah, really good question. Um, and maybe just a quick uh, breadcrumb of context just for some of the listeners. I mean, I got into personal care because I was the kid that grew up with bad skin, right? So as an athlete growing up, I tried everything from OxyPads, the ClearSol creams, you name it. But I was always running from two a days in football to attract me to AU basketball games. And like, I felt externally I was very healthy, but I didn't feel like my skin really reflected that necessarily. And I think that was the primary entry point for a lot of guys for a really long time into this category, which was purely problem solution, right? Like I have acne, I have thinning hair, I have graying hair. I like, I have something and I want to do something to address that issue. Otherwise this category was full of taboo, right? It's like, Oh, like I don't need that for my skin or I use the same soap to wash my armpits as I do my face. And like, that's totally fine. And this was all kind of the same age of like, yeah, I wear the same shirt four days in a row. Like, who cares? It's not that dirty, right? But clearly we've evolved away from that. So the way that we kind of talk about this category for most guys is this is kind of the last domino to fall, right? And I, I don't think it's a lack of inquiry or a lack of desire to some extent. A lot of guys just don't know where to go. Or you've shopped this category on autopilot for 15 or 20 or more years, right? Which is... I walk in on the 29th of every month to Kroger or Walgreens or CVS or Publix or you name it. And the only des decision I have to make that day is am I buying the Carolina blue cap dove for men or the spearmint green cap dove for men, right? Like that's the extent of your decision-making power. Um, and I think given how much more intentionality all of us are infusing into our day-to-day -day lives, 
I think for a lot of folks, like this is kind of a net new category for a lot of folks. And I think what a unique and interesting and opportunistic time to not only help educate this consumer in the category, um, but also have fun with it, right? Like, you know, this is, you know, one of the taglines that's emerged recently that we kind of banter around internally, which I thought was kind of funny, which is like, is here on serious products for guys that don't take themselves too seriously, yeah. right? Which is you, you don't need a 47 step routine to have a quote unquote skincare regimen. Our goal is to provide the world's best basics so that you can walk out of your house, apartment, you name it, not, not only looking a little bit better, but feeling better. And that's kind of like where we like to hang our hat is, is this series of products, our assortment of products, tools to give you a little bit more pep in your step as you walk out of your house each and every day. And I think that's kind of the relationship we've tried to build with this consumer around not only like looking, smelling, but also just feeling your best. So you can start to chalk up some early morning W's. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely relate to what you're saying in terms of like introduction into the category is always through, I guess, like problem solving and that same kind of background, you know, bad skin, sports, you know, whatever that aspect was what kind of brought me in. And then I think there's like a, you know, an interesting evolution maybe that's going on now where to me, I think that's kind of like the lowest level of maybe Maslow's hierarchy. You know, you kind of have those like basic needs kind of met. And then now you're looking for, you know, above and beyond that towards maybe like the self-actualization kind of higher end type goals where you actually are, you know, kind of looking to improve your appearance. You're trying to look much better. It's not necessarily just trying to solve those like basic needs. It's above and beyond that. And it, it's an interesting evolution because I think it relates a lot or has a lot of um, connection to where I spend a lot of time with like, you know, food and beverage and, and nutritional supplements where, you know, you have those conventional products, but then you have those like functional or, you know, value added type of products that now are getting a bunch of switching into because people are looking at themselves and saying like, th there has to be more to this. There has to be yep. something above and beyond just solving these basic core problems. Um, if I, you know, look better, I feel better. And if I feel better, I'm going to be able to maybe achieve more in this world. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, again, internally, like we are pretty co conscious of the fact that, like our products aren't curing cancer, right? Um, our products are intended to help you feel that incremental step better uh, to go attack the day. Right. And I think through better formulas, through better quality ingredients, you know, why does your body wash have to be neon blue? Like that's kind of weird. Right. Uh, again, there's this, this element of relatability in our tone of voice so that we can kind of almost wear the awkwardness of the category. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that kind of like lowers the barriers of entry for a lot of folks who have not yet found their brand or are still kind of stuck in like, I don't really know what's good in this category. So I just always default to what I've always been using. Yeah. Um, so yeah, again, it's kind of like this interesting transition mode of sorts and kind of positioning yourself as a brand to kind of like help usher this consumer into this, into this new era for them. Now we talked a little bit about, you know, product, it's kind of been weaving in and out of here and, and interested to hear your take on this, because I think the proliferation of like every CPG category is super apparent. I think anybody that, you know, you go into any retail place or you go on Amazon or really you just type into the Google machine, whatever you're looking for, there's a ton of different products. And I would say a lot of them are, you know, quote unquote, great products, or at least meet the consumer's, um, you know, purchase intents at that point. But 
being that there's a ton of competition crossed everywhere, what are you guys doing to kind of stand out above and beyond, you know, the product and the product attributes? Yeah, really good question. I mean, I think, uh, you know, harking back to the earlier days of direct to consumer kind of 2008 to 2010, 2011 product was kind of like very iffy <laughs> across the board, but people love the novelty of buying something online, right? It showed up in a cool box and you could tell your friends about it. And it was, it was very kind of new and different. I think as this has become a much more familiar way of purchasing, companies have really had to like level up their product assortment because no longer is this an effort of putting lipstick on a pig, but the shipper box is really cool. And that's all, all that really matters, yeah. right? Or a site does dances around and has a scroll bar or whatever it is. So I think there's still an element, even in the evolution towards fundamentally better product where product can actually be a moat, can really be a point of difference. And I think for us, what we're seeing um, is that is exactly the case. And folks we surveyed from the repeat customer side, the VIPs within our cohort, it is about product experience. It is about product efficacy, which is why they're coming back to Huron versus maybe continuing to search for other brands. Uh, and I think kind of uh, to your point around new product development and understanding like what is actually working versus what is not working, we are in communication with our customers all the time. At a minimum, we're surveying quarterly and oftentimes, even more so than that, we're kind of like splicing and dicing our, our customer segments. Because for us, I mean, we're a super small team. We're, we're a team of five. So that's five perspectives. But if we can get 100 people to take a survey or a few thousand people to take a survey, whether it's what's working, what, what we do better, what products would you like to see from us? Those are insanely helpful for us to think about not only how do we kind of tweak, fine tune, tinker with a current product or at all, but also what should be in our pipeline? Because there's kind of two schools of thought to your point around kind of newness in the market. Either you're launching products like once a month or you're saying like, no, we're waiting until we're putting a 12 out of 10 quality product into the market, which can certainly be a much longer lead time. And that's kind of like the breadth of the spectrum. For us, we've tended to anchor more towards that latter side of things. But I think over time, we'll start to get uh, you know more products pushed into the market knowing that People like to see newness and people appreciate newness. Uh, but but there is kind of this, this unduly commitment to creating the best possible products that we will put out into the into the ether. The place where a lot of CPG brands, you know, upstarts are is that they think we need to expand the assortment as quick as possible. Um, and they want to see incremental sales. And a lot of times they're not necessarily seeing I don't think a lot of incrementality. It's a lot of like cannibalization. They're they're kind of you know not necessarily creating the right basket of products because they're they're trying to rush. They're seeing maybe some of the trends fly by them, and they're thinking, hey, anytime, say a retailer asks me about uh, a certain product, you know, I'd love to see a competitor of this on shelf. I think you guys would do great at it, and they don't necessarily align that with you know what's on brand. They just think mm -hmm. you know what's on trend. Let's just search and grab whatever we can, you know, compared to what you're talking about, where you're saying, hey, we're really being thoughtful, at least initially here when we're creating out our basket, our assortment and saying, we want to make sure each one of these products that we create are home runs. You know, we're trying to create yep. the best option that's going to fit our customers at that point. And there's, I guess, two thoughts you were kind of mentioning around, um, 
being your own customer, which I think you, we mentioned before about, you know, the introduction into the category, you know, just kind of having that. And then also, you know, this idea of like demand side innovation or like, you know, customer inspired innovation. And you mentioned both of those. And I think a lot of people maybe misconstrue that those things are, can't be done together. Um, but I, I tend to think that they can because that why or that, you know, you being the, the, the consumer initially, that I guess started or kind of created the, the brand strategic narrative, I guess, like the, mm -hmm. the thing that's going to constantly be, you know, the, the core, the foundation of everything. And then that shouldn't necessarily create like biases or maybe misinterpretation of consumer insights or whatever, just because maybe your idea of what you should do next is different than what the customer is saying. Like you could do both of those together, but for whatever reason, I think maybe people lean too far into the idea of like, I'm the core consumer, I'm creating things that I want. Um, I don't really care about what the rest of the market or my brand's customers are saying. I just ultimately are building things for myself. And that maybe is not necessarily creating things that the market actually wants or needs. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think that's spot on. And I think, you know, again, as a, as a founder, if you are your own consumer, so to speak, uh, there's going to be an implicit bias around, Hey, I think here's a slew of six to 10 products that we should really bring to market. I think it's really great to have that level of founder conviction around product. And that can certainly be true for maybe the early few products in the assortment. But then I think quickly that has to be married with what are the data points that we're soliciting from our customer base around either product categories that are underserved in terms of products that are kind of missing in terms of, you know, the, the here on level of quality, let's call it, but also thinking about, you know, again, where can we marry what our customers are telling us with our kind of category insights through experience to say, well, here's actually like a net new opportunity, like a true zero to one based off of the data that we've collected from our customers, but also kind of tying that to like what we kind of know about the category. Uh, for instance, my, my, my co-founder spent, you know, 25 years running product development at Estee Lauder. So he has just decades of experience in kind of this and knowing scent profiles and formulations and whatnot. So we can kind of leverage those data points that we're getting on the surface level, but then kind of marry that with a little bit of kind of gut reaction around where we kind of want to be from a product sense. But I agree with your point. It's, it's, it's a little bit of a dangerous game to kind of over index on either one of those, because if you're just going to be the 12th manufacturer of a razor, like what actually is your point of difference, yeah. right? Or conversely, if we have this super novel product that the market's not really ready for, we may be launching it to no one, right? And, and that doesn't do anyone any good either. So it's kind of like this, this definitely a, a delicate balance of sorts, but all that goes to say, I think a lot of that is ultimately rooted in data. And the more you can talk with your customer, the more you can understand them, the more you can solicit feedback, quantitative data points to help kind of move the business forward, that will ultimately lead you to, to, to the right decision-making um, in my mind. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I know we've been harping on product for a while here, so I wanna kind of shift gears a little bit here and, and kind of piggyback off of that idea of like being your own you know, consumer, but not necessarily from the product sense, like mm -hmm. around how that helps, I guess, the entrepreneurial drive. And like when times are tough and there's a ton of chaos, I mean, you guys launched this before 2020. Um, so you had to go through the last two years of the pandemic era. 
And I'm sure there's been times where, you know, things just aren't going the way that you thought. And it has to, like, something has to be anchored back to something that's yep. above and beyond, um, you know, wanting to make money or wanting to, you know, whatever. And, and I kind of want to, you know, get your sense of, like, how that all kind of comes together for you. Yeah, I think for me, quite honestly, it's pretty easy. I mean, the fact that I have such an intimate relationship with our customer because, you know, that was me 10, 15, 20 years ago. I kind of wake up every morning knowing for whom we're fighting for, right? Which is the guy on Friday nights who's like wandering the CVS being like, man, I hope this cream works. Even though I've tried it seven times before and I'm 0 for 7. Uh, you know, I say it's kind of tongue in cheek, but like it, it's not a fun process to go through. And, you know, Huron actually traces its name from a, a, a Genesis standpoint to it was a street that I was living on in Chicago at the time when my skin issues were at their worst. And I actually had a boss tell me one time, he's like, hey, man, like we can't take you to meetings anymore if like you're going to look like this. And I'm like, oh, that's that makes me feel fantastic. Um, so when I think about like, you know, yes, there are ups and downs. There were a lot of both over the past 18 months as the world was kind of figuring itself out. And I think for me, one of kind of the consistencies or the infrastructural pieces that was rather unwavering was this notion of fighting for that guy, again, me 15 to 20 years ago. And that was kind of the North Star that I needed to kind of say like, no, it's worth pushing to send this extra email. No, it's worth getting up this you know half hour early to, to keep sprinting. Um, and I think that kind of direct relationship with the end consumer I quite frankly couldn't imagine, you know, going on and doing something else in the entrepreneurial world where I didn't have that level of exposure or firsthand experience, quite frankly, because that's been such a crucial element of our journey thus far and such a motivating, motivating piece, quite honestly. Yeah. I mean, when you were talking, this is kind of ringing true in terms of like how I approach, if it's a consulting client in CPG or if it's, um, you know, an early investment or something, it's, you know, I look at one in terms of you know vision and, and all that kind of stuff's important but there's an element of needing to be extremely kind of passionate and anchored to a bigger kind of why that needs to be hugely apparent in those early conversations if i'm going to be you know spending a lot of time or or maybe money towards something is that you want to make sure that there's something deeper in that entrepreneur that is going to get them through tough times um, because CPG entrepreneurship is it's tough. It's you know it's it's a it's a grind. And yep. if anybody is listening to this and they're saying, man, it looks sexy to be a CPG entrepreneur, and it's and it, it is. There's a lot of fun aspects of CPG industry, but it is a daily grind. That if you don't have something above and beyond, you know, looking at an exit or looking at some aspect of making money you're going to fail probably 99 out of a hundred times because yep. there's going to be things that get thrown right in your face that you're not going to be able to overcome by just getting up each morning and being motivated by money or being motivated by, you know, some aspect of clout or, or whatever it is. I think there needs to be something deeper that's inside of you that like drives you and kind of what you were mentioning about like going to battle for your customers. Cause like that was really you and you did, you don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, succumb to any of the challenges because then like, where do those customers turn? Like you, you've, you were the customer before you're like, I didn't know where to turn. And I am creating this company to solve Created that the problem, <laughs> you know? So it's, yeah. it, it's good to hear those types of things because I think that that is, and, and you know, coming from, I guess, investment banking and, and all that side, like you've, you heard some of this stuff as well, I'm sure during pitches and like, 
you could tell very quickly the you know paper bag between you know over like the very strong foundation you know what i mean there's a lot yeah. of people that just like they they know how to say the right things but when you get down to like some of the deeper inner workings of a person you're like they just don't got it right yeah no and and i think two two points that kind of like immediately jumped in my head as you were speaking um one you have to be your own voice of yes right because there are going to be a million reasons or opportunities that surface almost on a daily basis that will be hurdles right so literally no two days are the same um, and you have to be your own motivating factor to keep pushing the ball forward day in and day out so i think that's that, that's certainly one thing and that was kind of like the impetus to actually like get into the entrepreneurial ring was i was just like i kept beating around the bush i kept beating around the bush and finally someone said like look the timing is never going to be right like ever but like you have to be the voice of yes and I was like, that's a really good point. Like I'm in. And once I told one person that this is what I was working on, like you get the domino effect. Yeah. Right. Um, and secondly, kind of the, the motivating factor. I mean, if you're motivated by money, like this is definitely not, not, not the, uh, not the journey for you. Um, I think you have to be motivated by the grind quite frankly. And it's, it's the notion of getting up early, going to bed late, like pushing, working hard because there's going to be so many things that are thrown your way. And it's really a mental balancing act in my mind, more than anything, like how well can you control your emotions? How well can you help other people progress in their career? How well can you do all these other things that quite frankly, aren't financially driven with the goal of being a financial win, right? But if you're kind of architecting for that for time zero or day one or day two, like you're sailing in the wrong direction. I think what you constantly have to be bringing yourself back to is like addressing the basic blocking and tackling, crawl, walk, run, actually getting bigger by thinking smaller. And what I mean by that is like constantly honing in on the scope and saying like, no, as we progress, we're only gonna learn about the things that we do better. Let's just focus on those things and strategically supplement as we go. But it's actually like, executing on what you do well for a really long time um, versus trying to like recreate the world. Uh, but yeah, those are just some thoughts that kind of came to mind um, as you were speaking that, that that definitely resonated. And I want to kind of transition, you're mentioning, you know, some of the challenges and, and I think what we just talked about, um, the, one of the big challenges with direct consumer brands right now is that happened with like the iOS kind of changeover and you know, you've probably had to approach maybe your sales channel strategy a little bit differently um, currently. And, and I know that this maybe even goes into a current, you know, upcoming challenge, something that, you know, I've been warning, I think a lot of uh, CPG founders and, and entrepreneurs about lately is that, you know, the access to capital, I think at this point is going to be restricted, um, you know, immensely. I think a lot of these you know, VC firms or, or wherever you're kind of getting capital from or, or looking at their portfolio companies and saying, we need to, you know, sure them up. We need to make sure they're good over trying to, you know, add more risk and more risk and more risk. Um, so with some of that stuff that's happening, I think with the you know, performance marketing side or digital marketing side, um, and also, I guess, the convergence of maybe the, you know, not being able to maybe raise a bunch of more capital. I mean, how are you looking at, I guess, first on the sales channel strategy, D to C and, and, and just marketing and making sure you're profitable on that aspect, not necessarily trying to, I guess, feed the machine of growth 
too much, but ultimately not making a profit? Are, are those things running through your brain? Oh, all the time. I mean, I think there's a pretty big dichotomy as well between the element of growth and growing at all costs, right? Which I think the latter being kind of very much in vogue from, I don't know, call it like 2013 to 2015 or 16, up yeah. until like pretty recently, quite frankly. Um, but for us, our mission has always been like, how quickly can we cross the chasm from being a brand to being a business? And what I mean by that is really strong growth profile, but you're spitting off money. Because in my mind, the most appealing or attractive acquisition candidate is the one that doesn't need to be acquired, yeah. right? So for us, it's like, how can we stand on our own two feet? So knowing that, like we get insanely granular when it comes to 30, 60, 90 day LTV, you know, what does basket size look like for a 6X purchaser versus a 12X purchaser? Like what was the initial three basket size? Like we're constantly dissecting data to figure out, are there uncoverings that we have not yet found that can lead through a breakthrough? Because I feel like as, you know, early stage founders, we have access to all this customer data. The issue is, is that we don't have the time or the mental horsepower to go through it all, right? So we, we actually put that, um, put that kind of work scope on, on a pretty high priority in terms of data digging, data analysis, whatnot. So that's kind of one thing. Secondly, um, to your point around channel diversification, like we are absolutely leaning into that, knowing that, you know, we have a pretty uh, rigid CPA threshold that we can tolerate before it just doesn't make sense for us to pay for this customer, right? So it's knowing that what other channels can you lean into that may be more efficient, whether it be from a profitability standpoint, from a uh, higher LTV likelihood customer. Um, so kind of that's not only sales channels, but also acquisition channels. I mean, TikTok is very much in vogue right now, but what's cool about TikTok is like, there are no rules, right? There aren't, there are a bunch of agencies popping up who want to claim to be TikTok experts, but like no one's a TikTok expert, yeah. right? Which, which is awesome which is the level of arbitrage that existed early stage with Facebook, you could scale really, really quickly. So for us and for many other brands, it's, you know, what is your super niche to figure out, like, how can you position yourself differently and then feed that algorithm content that would hopefully resonate with a much broader base. So, you know, I, I don't think that's necessarily uh, special for us. I think a lot of brands are, are trying that, but that's all bubbling up to your point, which is Facebook is becoming more and more difficult not only because it's more competitive, but also because you're getting half of the data back that you used yeah. to be able to get. So it's how can you diversify to continue to put your business in a place to win, um, knowing that those costs are on the rise. You mentioned, you know, 14, 15, even up to recently, there's a lot of like these brands that got built off of a, I don't want to call it like a cheat code, but like a, like a hack of the, of the process where like they were really sure. arbitraging a certain aspect of this, but Ultimately, it was a more transactional house of cards that was getting built because, you know, the, the maybe the uh, creative or media they were using was off brand, but it was performing well or, or, you know, all these types of things that happened where now all of a sudden I think marketing is going back to a holistic set. And I don't want to get way off track here, but I, I do think that, like creative matters and um, brand storytelling matters and like all these types of things need to be a part of also your performance or your know, digital marketing. It can't just be mm -hmm. we are over-indexing on one, but not necessarily focusing on the other, because long-term, that's a lot of, I guess, dilution uh, to the brand. And, and eventually, you kind of poke your head up and you 
you're, you're lost. The, the consumer doesn't even know who you are or why, you know, they're buying from you all of a sudden because they're, they came in for one reason. And then all of a sudden the messages are all over the place. The creatives all over the place or whatever. And they're like, let me go somewhere where I understand this brand a lot better than here, because yeah. eventually somebody's going to find that as an opportunity and then create a better experience off of the missteps of, you know, a transactional brand or whatever. So I find it to be interesting now that a lot of these direct consumer brands that were scaling and growing like crazy off the back of Facebook are now a little bit lost, but really it's like, it's going back to the core of like, marketing and just looking at it and saying like, wow, all of a sudden, like this brand stuff, this, this creative stuff actually matters a lot more than we yeah. thought. Yeah. And I think that's some of the dangers of hyper growth too, where if you go from spending 50 K a month on Facebook to 500 K a month, because something is scaling well, well, then you need the top of the creative funnel to feed that spend. Right. So what happens is you get kind of loose and constraints on creative aesthetics, as you alluded to, or copy. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, like this doesn't sound like us. Like wh wh where have we kind of like lost our ways a bit? And I think as we've scaled, that's something we've tried to keep our finger on the pulse of, which is like for us, like copy is extremely important. So we write all the copy, whether we work with in-house folks or an agency, like we 100% write a copy, write the copy all the time. And I think that kind of puts a little bit of, uh, so it's a process a little bit, but again, it keeps everything consistent, whether it be messaging, look, feel, et cetera. And then, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were days in 2014 or 2015, and there are plenty of brands and, and founders who are on all the social platforms who champion product this and product that you acquire someone for three bucks on Facebook, like you could spend infinitely. And I think that's like, uh, oftentimes a overlooked detail. Uh, that that some of these folks don't want to champion or bring up, but like, yeah, I mean that that arb doesn't exist anymore on some of these platforms. So what do you do is you look elsewhere and try and figure out like where your brand seems to have an upper hand, and you double down in those categories. But yeah, I mean I think the kind of the consistency of messaging, look, feel across all these new outlets and channels becomes more and more important as what used to be kind of the the single area of focus vis-a-vis -vis Facebook starts to kind of like wither away or, uh, you know, or, or fall apart to some extent. I want to circle back a little bit towards um, sales channel diversification and get your thoughts on Amazon, because I think that a lot of direct consumer brands, for whatever reason, hate on Amazon. They will say, I'll never be on there, whatever reason. And it always is a little bit confusing to me, and maybe it's because uh, I'm a quote unquote, maybe Amazon lover. I've been uh, in the platform for over a decade in terms of, um, you know, on the seller side and vendor side. So mm -hmm. I probably know it on a very intimate level and know how to do both very well together in unison and not necessarily cause a lot of cannibalization and, and a lot of that stuff. But for whatever reason, the conversations, if it's with just founders that maybe, you know, I talk to or, you know, even on something like Twitter or Instagram or, or, you know, LinkedIn or whatever it is, they always seem to instantly, maybe it's they're, they're anchored to some bias of like, oh, it's terrible. This is whatever, or, you know, they have misinformation or, or whatever it is. But I, I think that it's a hugely missed opportunity um, in CPG if you can understand how to leverage it correctly. And, and before we got on here, I did look to see if you, you were on Amazon before I asked this question, because I was like, Kind of curious to see what your thought is, but um, how do you think about 
Amazon and how that relates to your digital business? Yeah, I mean, I think they work very much in tandem. And for us, Amazon was a no-brainer in terms of should we be on this platform or not. Uh, our core consumer is a guy 25 to 40. So if you're a single guy living in Columbus, let's call it, and you're on Amazon buying paper towels and toothpaste and something else, like for us not to be there, which is essentially digital point of sale, for me was like a huge miss, right? So we've been able to grow our Amazon business pretty substantially since launching. So we launched in February of 2020. Well, it was a little different back then, but Amazon became the most reliant retailer during COVID, right? Guaranteed two day shipping. So for us, that was, that was a pretty big tailwind. Um, and we have grown that business pretty substantially, but the way that we look at Amazon and our D2C business, we, we look at them individually in a vacuum, but then we look at total marketing spend because the customer journey today varies so differently across each consumer, right? Like you may get served an Instagram ad, then Google the brand, then see we're on Amazon then read Amazon reviews, then forget about us, then get served another Instagram ad, go to the site and buy, right? Like that's, that's nearly impossible to track. So for us, like we're managing touch points and kind of looking at total spend versus what we're driving across both platforms, but also measuring kind of both platforms efficiency rating separately. But all in all, huge opportunity for us and something we, we've leaned into from a, a really early point in our business trajectory. Easy stat to point to, you know, any entrepreneur is the fact that, you know, Amazon, I think over 50% of product searches start on Amazon. And for most CPG brands, the the product listings get more hits than their websites. So most people are going on and, and their first, I guess, learning of your brand is usually through Amazon. And if they type in your brand, you're not there. Amazon is obviously smart enough to serve you something that is as close of a substitute as possible. Oh. And if you're in that moment of purchase desire of like, I need to buy something, then you're losing out on a ton of opportunity to get in front of those customers because of all that non-branded search that happens. And it just kind of natural customer journey that kind of goes into there. But it, it is, it's super interesting that a lot of brands don't necessarily look at it that way. They, they want to hold all the cards. They want all the customer data They're You know, they're so scared of maybe Amazon coming in and creating a private label or whatever, which is, and it's, it's, it's a, kind of weird to think about because any retailer, anywhere you go, people are trying to totally. probably knock you off. I mean, even if it's not private label, it's some other premium brand. It could be, you know, somebody you talked to a week ago, that's going to knock off your stuff. It could be somebody you're talking, you know, you're following you on Twitter or whatever. It's like constantly people are, are looking to kind of, you know, gain something in the market. So I don't know if there's, you know, much merit to, you know, some of those kind of concerns, but Second kind of thought on diversification of, of sales channel is that, you know, a lot of the direct to consumer brands have started to look for, I guess, opportunities in large retailers that are aligned mm -hmm. with, you know, what they're looking for. And an obvious one that I thought for you guys is somebody like Target, because I think that there is both females going in there to buy for their man that I think you guys product would fit perfectly the look, the, you know, a lot of the attributes or whatever. And then secondly, you know, just men going in there and going in that aisle. And there's a lot of, of very loud things. There's a lot of things that maybe you would not necessarily want to um, show on your counters or in your, your <laughs> shower or whatever. And you know, maybe you're a shower single ledge. guy and, you know, <laughs> you're, you know, you're having, you know, girls come over or whatever. And, you know, it's just like an, it's, 
maybe you don't want to show the axe or you want to show the whatever. And and I think having the Huron bottle, it's like a totally different experience. I think that's something it, it kind of relates to maybe like the method, um, you know, dish soap or, or whatever, where you like, it, it looks like something you would want to keep on your counter. Right. And you wouldn't be embarrassed that if somebody came over, you'd be like, oh, like, I better hide this underneath my uh, yeah. sink. Yeah, I mean, for us, I've always firmly believed that Huron is a brand that can live offline and on shelf. I think for us, it's just a matter of timing, quite frankly, as a bunch of D2C brands rush, quite frankly, to get on shelf to fight against rising acquisition costs on digital. I don't think there's a lot of behind the scenes arithmetic that goes into a, what it takes to be successful on shelf and B, the repercussions if you're not successful on shelf. So what I mean by that in kind of the first bucket is, um, you know, you have to budget for end caps and sampling and TPRing and being competitive because you're oftentimes viewed in that first 90 days as to whether or not you're going to win on shelf or not. And then secondly, if things don't go as swimmingly as planned, you may get hundreds of thousands of dollars in chargebacks from products that didn't move. Yeah. And that can absolutely crush a business. So for us, um, again, I, it's something that we're extremely passionate about. Um, it's a matter of timing. It's a matter of finding the right retail partner. And I always get a little bit of hesitation as like the world moves in one direction pretty adamantly and pretty quickly. Like, is that a sign to say like, well, maybe we should be pumping the brakes and kind of looking elsewhere. Uh, you know, my, my own two cents and kind of brick and mortar retail or, or wholesale, it's very difficult to kind of make someone aware of your brand, quickly educate them and then sell them on shelf in like three seconds. Yeah. So the longer that we can kind of work to supplement D2C Amazon channels with other interesting strategic opportunities while we're building brand awareness behind the scenes, does that make more sense for us than six, 12, 18 months from now to go on shelf versus like tomorrow? And I would venture to say that the, the answer is yes, but it's, I mean, it's definitely, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's exciting and it's, uh, it can loop you in because all of a sudden you get this big PO right out of the gates for however many hundreds of stores. And you're like, oh man, like that's amazing for cash flow. But you know, you, you also have to sell through those products at a pretty quick clip, uh, for that retailer to be excited. Yeah. I'm glad that you brought up a few of those points because I think that there is, you know, a ton of costs, both from a direct perspective, as you mentioned, a lot of um, you know, trade costs and um, things you need to do to kind of help support the retail environment. Also, you know, structurally within your organization, when you do make that decision to go and step into wholesale deeply, that usually then changes the structure organizationally of the company. You need more salespeople, especially if you're totally. very much a direct consumer or a digital business where a lot of it is maybe marketers or you know those types of uh, structure where you have to kind of change that because you need to have individuals actually be out in the field and support and be able to make sure that a lot of those trade spends, if it's um, end caps or whatever, actually getting executed correctly. And then, you know, you have exactly. to actually visit the stores and, you know, check on things and make sure everything's good. Secondly, talking about that downside risk. I mean, I think a lot of people don't want to let their mind get to that of like, what happens if the product doesn't get pulled off shelf? Like, what does that happen? Because there's a real cost that's involved with that, but people don't ever really bake that into the model because you be it overconfidence or, you know, ego, whatever, like it would never happen to me. Like, why would I have to worry about this? But it happens a lot more times than it, it doesn't does. happen. And I think that that's, 
you know, something that I thought was really cool that you brought up because I think those things maybe don't get thought of enough. Um, and then thirdly, you mentioning the whole wave is going in one direction. And because that whole wave is going in that direction, all of those buyers, um, all those retailers, they know that they can push the limits on what they ask for you to yep. be that vendor because they know that if you don't say yes, they just go to the next person, go to the next person, go to the next person. So from just a cost layers of like what you would have to actually have to be on shelf currently would be elevated if unless maybe you wait a little bit, be patient and be kind of more thoughtful in terms of that approach and not just saying we need to rush into this. There's probably another way to get to our current answer we need to get to without doing something that's super costly right now. Right. So just loved all those points because I, I think that those are really a culmination of like things that founders need to think about when they are shifting from online to offline. Yeah, I mean, it's an unfortunate truth, but you have to bake in a little bit of a downside scenario, right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you go all in on some of these retailers, whether it be a pretty substantial regional test or a national rollout and it doesn't go well, like that can be end of the game for some companies, which is a very like morbid thing to say, but it's true. Uh, so it's just something that we've been thinking about. Um, you know, we have a high degree of conviction, uh, in our kind of current trajectory across D2C growth and Amazon. Um, but certainly kind of like always an evaluation of right partner, right time, right opportunity. Well, Matt, I won't take up any more of your time. This was a blast. I had a ton of yeah. fun talking. I think we kind of got into some nooks and crannies that I think are super valuable. I think it, a lot of people that are watching this or listening to this is going to get a ton of value out of our conversation. So I do want to just thank you for giving me and my community some time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Josh, for having me. It's fun. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have any comments or questions about anything I discussed during it, open the podcast episode notes and click on any of my social media account links to reach out to me directly. 